Okay, Malachi chapter 2 verse 17 to chapter 3 verse 7. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he's pleased with them. Or, where is the God of justice? I will send my messenger, who will prepare the way before me. Then, suddenly, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant, whom you desire, you'll come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord, as in days gone by, as in former years. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers and perjurers, against those who defraud labourers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive the foreigners among you of justice, but do not fear me says the Lord Almighty. I'm the Lord, I do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees. And you haven't kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, here's the question. Is there anything worse than having to wait? When is this lockdown going to end? When can we go outside? Gladys, when? When? When will we get there? When? Nobody likes waiting. No one likes to wait. And it's not just the kids anymore, is it? It's, it's us too. And yet the strange thing is, once we do get out of lockdown, you know what we're going to be doing now, don't you? We're just going to be waiting in different ways, in different places. We're going to be waiting in traffic as everyone gets back in their car. We're going to be waiting for a parking spot, waiting for our number to be called at the deli counter, waiting for the baby to come, the train to arrive, the plane to take off, name to be called, medical results to arrive, even waiting for the sermon to be finished. <laughs> hmm. Waiting, waiting, waiting. Our lives, well, they're just full of waiting, aren't they? And for us Christians, waiting, waiting on God, well, it's what we're all about, isn't it? That's what we're waiting for. We Christians are waiting for God's return. We're waiting for God's return, uh, Christ's return, the redemption of our bodies, the church to be vindicated in glory. And in the meantime, we're, of course, waiting for those that we know and love to come and know Jesus like we do. The Christian life is set entirely within God's waiting room. That's where we are. Here we sit, waiting for God to act. 
Yeah, waiting. So much waiting. Yet while we Christians wait, God tells us in the Bible that he is busy doing all kinds of things. He is busily at work gathering his people to himself and he is transforming us more and more into the likeness of Christ. And he does that in the waiting room. See, God uses waiting to test and refine our faith that it might become of greater worth than gold, giving us ample time to well, get with the program, ample time to keep in step with his spirit and actively participate in what he's doing. Therefore, the question of how we spend our time while we wait and how we respond to the challenges that God brings us while we wait well, those are the actions, those are the attitudes that reveal a whole lot about us and tell us a whole lot about ourselves. Our waiting reveals to us our godliness and our progress in godliness or lack of it. But we're not the first ones, of course, to experience what it is to be waiting for God to improve us and everything around us. We're not the first. No, no. The Israelites in Malachi's day were struggling to wait on God just in the same way that we did. And as we read what God said to them through Malachi, we find that they were about as good at waiting as an impatient toddler in a shopping crew, in a, in a shopping queue. You know, the, what do they do? You know, why are we waiting? Mom, you don't love me. They came across a whole lot like that, don't they? We've... You see this because of if you read the whole book, it's, it's short, but we've parachuted in here at that second chapter. And as we parachute in here, we see that God is highlighting their waiting problems. And their key waiting problem that we see here highlighted here that Karen read out for us is their problem with justice. They got sick of waiting for God to act against injustice. And so they decided that maybe God had changed his mind because, you know, well, God's taking so long about this, they decided that God must have changed his mind and now he actually thinks that good is evil and evil is good. It's a bizarre move. Indeed it is. But we've got to admit, it was an inventive way to cope with their experience of waiting. I mean, you know, think about it. You know, God isn't judging evil at the speed we think he should judge evil. Therefore, God must be pleased with evil. It's an easy conclusion to come to, isn't it? Especially when they're sitting in the waiting room making it up as they go along without reference to anything but their current experience. And so redefining in that space what God thinks of good and evil, well, it, it wasn't actually all they got up to. In fact, the whole book of Malachi is written as a diatribe, a back and forth argument addressing the numerous poor choices they made while they waited. So God says he loves them and they ask, how? Where's the evidence? God says they've shown him contempt and they say, how? We think you ask too much. They ask why God no longer pays attention to their service of him. And he asks them, why do they offer dodgy leftovers that no one else would accept. He highlights their partiality, their favoritism, their adultery and their persistence in evil. And they ask, well, what are you going to do about it? Where's the God of justice? He asks, 
why they rob him of what they know he is owed. And they ask, well, why aren't you blessing us? God says they speak arrogantly against him. And they say, arrogantly, prove it. In Malachi is the very last book of the Old Testament. It's the very last thing that God says publicly to Old Testament Israel through the prophets. And it's not a pretty picture of harmony and happy families. And this is strange, isn't it? It's strange because aren't these the people whom God has just rescued and brought out of exile in Babylon and brought them living back in his place and under his rule just like he promised? Well, yes, they are. Although it's been 160 years since Jeremiah wrote that famous letter that we looked at last week. 160 years. Well, that's a couple of generations, isn't it? Easy to forget. The remnant is indeed now living back in Jerusalem as God had promised. But that promise still seems to be off somehow, doesn't it? The promise has occurred. Yes, they're back there. But it's been a kind of a yes and a kind of a no simultaneously. It's like, you know, you know it's like you know, going to the waiting room at the doctor's. You know, finally, you get an appointment. You're in the waiting room. The Israelites, yeah, sure, they're in the building. They've got an appointment. It's on track. The promise of healing is closer than it was before. And yet, they're still sick. And they're still They're still waiting. So what has happened to God's promise? What's happened to it? We all know it started well. We know it started well because we can read back in our Bibles to see it. We know it started well that the remnant came out of exile in Babylon because God moved in the heart of Cyrus, king of the Persians. God had said he would return them after 70 years of exile, and indeed he had. He kept his promise. Around that whole time of the famous Daniel in the lion's den incident, the prophet Daniel read deeply into God's word, and he repented on behalf of the nation and prayed for God to keep his promise to return them. We read that prayer in Daniel chapter 9. And God did. God acted and Cyrus started sending the Israelites back. This remnant who was in Babylon started sending them back to Jerusalem. And so the temple was rebuilt under the oversight of Ezra the priest. The re-established sacrificial system got going and teaching was back under the care of the Levites. The walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt fully under Nehemiah who led them. And Haggai and Zechariah, sorry, the prophet... Uh, spoke into that time and again helped them then and so they were secure in the land and they were back there once more it was a truly miraculous turnaround that happened after that 70-year exile but by the time we get to Malachi's day they've been back in the promised land around Jerusalem something like 90 years more than a generation and it was all according to God's promises yes And yet the day-to-day reality of their life was far, far from living up to the expansive promises God had made through his prophets. Those prophets who'd spoken before the exile, during the exile, even straight after the exile, they'd made all these promises what it was going to be like. But it wasn't like that yet. 
I mean, for a start, the temple was way smaller than the previous one had been. It hardly fit the Jews themselves, much less all these nations that Isaiah had said would come flooding into it once they returned. And those nations were pretty much still, well, in opposition to the Jews. Meanwhile, there was no king sitting on David's throne, much less one who was like a servant king, ancient of days, wonderful counsellor, everlasting father, prince of peace. Where was that guy? And meanwhile, for all of them, from the smallest to the greatest, they all still found obedience to God a tiresome task indeed. Not yet anything like that new heart and new spirit he'd promised them. So, things being as they were, they decided that, well, maybe God had changed his mind. Maybe he decided to reverse things like justice and turn it over maybe God was actually just like a fickle human being who makes big promises but then only partially keeps them or maybe maybe he doesn't truly love his people after all maybe maybe this maybe that maybe we just can't know maybe he wants us to make it up for ourselves Maybe that's what we should be doing. And in their discouragement, that's precisely what they did. They stopped examining God's word. They stopped looking back to see what he had already said. God had made it very clear through the prophet Daniel that there would be a long delay, that there would be a long delay, a delay full of trouble before his promises were fulfilled entirely. But the remnant had seen enough of the beginnings of those promises starting to be fulfilled that they presumed everything should have happened by now. They decided the waiting was too long, that the trouble was too much. Therefore, they conclude God must have changed. He must have. But God, ever vigilant for his glory... And the truth about him to be believed, God spoke again. God speaks to them through Malachi. 3 verse 6, I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. God hasn't changed at all, and he doesn't change his mind. And because he doesn't change, because he keeps his promises without changing, This is the reason the descendants of Jacob are alive at all. Because while God hasn't changed, neither have they. The Jews haven't changed either. For even after everything that has happened to them, after everything in their history, they still turn away from God's word and do their utmost to not keep his commands. Verse 7, continuing, Ever since the time of your ancestors, says God, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. From the the very moment he saved them out of Egypt and pulled them out of Egypt and made them his own, he had promised blessings for them. Yes, he had promised them if they obeyed his word. The blessings would only come if they obeyed his word. And so here he appeals to them again. Return to me, he says, return to me, Verse 7 continuing, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, oh, how are we to return? Another arrogant, thoughtless response. 
And the answer God gives throughout Malachi is the same answer that has always been there since Moses and Mount Sinai. The same answer, listen to my word, obey my word, listen properly, follow my decrees obediently, diligently, and I will bless you while you wait for my promises to be fulfilled. Obey and I'll bless you while you wait for the day that is yet to come. And on that day, well, that's when I'll act in full. Now, thankfully, we see in Malachi that someone listened. Some of them listened. We find as we keep reading that some of the Jews listened and they responded this time with reverence and awe. And God gave assurance to those who listened, assuring them of his relationship with them and their future. He said, verse 16, uh, we read then verse 16, Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honoured his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them, just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Well, this day that God will act sometime into their future is the same day of the Lord that all the prophets had been speaking about before Malachi. A day that Malachi reminds them hasn't happened yet. And if it hasn't happened yet, then it's wrong to judge God against it. It's wrong to accuse him of failing against a measure that isn't yet in place. Instead, as Malachi points out, they're going to need to pull their heads in and wait patiently until that day arrived. And then, of course, helpfully again, here through Malachi, along with his instructions about how they should wait faithfully and carefully for that day, God also gives them a bunch of warnings. A bunch of warnings about that day to come, along with a bunch of signs to look for that will tell them when. It has arrived. So warnings about what's going to come and signs to look for to know when it's come. The warnings, well, actually, we don't need to look at them because they're all in keeping with the same instructions about waiting. Remember his law, revere his name, preserve knowledge of him and teach with true instruction, not false. Be on your guard. Don't be unfaithful and he will bless them. And in fact, he says he'll bless them famously while they wait for the day of the Lord to come. And they would know that the day has arrived, different to the blessings and the troubles of their current circumstances. They will know the day has come, irrelevant of what's going on, whether it's good or bad. They will know it's come because someone's going to show up. God is going to send another messenger to announce that day. And the messenger is key to knowing when that day has got there. 4 verse 5. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Elijah? Yeah, Elijah. Long dead Elijah will come. Elijah, 
the most famous, according to the Israelites, the most famous of all the Old Testament prophets. And it'd be really easy for them to spot when he arrived because of how distinctive Elijah was in his words and in his clothing. See, in words, Elijah addressed every single level of society, calling every heart to repentance from the greatest person to the least person. And in terms of what he wore in outfit, well, no one could miss him because of what he wore and because of what he ate. It's very distinctive, this Elijah guy. Had this leather belt surrounding clothing of camel's hair and he ate a diet of locusts and wild honey. Mmm, tasty. So this was God's announcement through Malachi. When that guy shows up, when a guy who sounds like Elijah and who looks like Elijah rocks up on the scene publicly in Israel for everyone to meet, well, they would know that he was the messenger announcing the day of the Lord about to begin. Chapter 3, verse 1. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly... The Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. And that's good. That's what they want, isn't it? They want that day to start. But it's also dangerous. It's going to be a dangerous day, especially for the Jews who will be there at that time, because God's king who follows Elijah's messenger will bring God's righteousness with him. A righteousness that will definitely ruffle the feathers of Jerusalem and those in Jerusalem as he puts the Jews who are there to the test. And so Malachi warns them in advance of what that will look like. Continuing verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, against those who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me says the Lord Almighty. And so it's good. It's a good day. It's, got, it's a good day and it's the day they want to come at last. But it's also a scary problem for anyone who will be there on that day who doesn't yet fear the Lord. It highlights that age-old problem that we all know so well that sometimes getting what we're waiting for mm, can be a whole lot more than we bargained for. And so while this is a moment of hope, and there's hope in this moment in Malachi, it will actually play out in all kinds of awful things for them. It will certainly prove true of the Israelites that the worst of these threats of the Lord will actually come to them. You see, 450 years after Malachi, God sent that Elijah in John the Baptist dressed as him, speaking as Elijah, announcing that the day of the Lord had come and all Israel and all the people in Jerusalem went out to see him, to meet him, to hear from him. And then God's king suddenly came. 
just as he said he would suddenly come, as Malachi had said. Jesus entered into Jerusalem and he found the temple and its leaders and those Levite teachers full of corruption. And he found the foreigners deprived of justice, the widows and the fatherless being oppressed. That's what he found. Now, they saw him coming, all right? I mean, by then, they were studying the Scriptures very, very carefully. By the time John and Jesus arrived, the Jews had been studying all the words of the prophets. They'd learned the lesson from Malachi. They started studying. They started looking. They made sure they knew. They made sure they got the right guys. And they got them. And they dealt with them. And then God responded just as he had said and warned through Malachi that he would, that if they do not repent, chapter 4, verse 6, he would strike the land of the Jews with total destruction. And in 70 AD, that's precisely what happened. Now, clearly, I've taken us a long way past Malachi, and we need to look at that in detail. We need to see what really happens here and make sure we get this right and make sure we understand it properly. We need to see the good and the bad of how all this plays out, of how God's king does come and of how they treat him and also how the nations do come streaming into into God's new temple. These are the things we need to look at carefully. And thankfully, there's another 27 books of the Bible to go that are going to unpack that for us. And that's what we're going to look together at as we come into the New Testament, as we come after the school holidays in term four to that. There is so much more to come. So much more to come, both in the awful as we see it play out, but also as God reveals his grace and truth to all nations just as he had promised all that time ago back there with Abraham, what he promised through David, what he continued to promise through the prophets. And for now then, as we close off the Old Testament, we can mark this development in the kingdom of God. We can mark the things that we now understand about his kingdom for God just like this. If we were to combine together the message of Malachi with the other prophets of that time in our kingdom table, we would write it like this. On the day of the Lord, when his kingdom comes, so on the the day of the Lord, when his kingdom comes, God's people, well, who will they be? It will be all people who fear the Lord. That was the phrase that was there in Malachi, all who fear the Lord. God's place, the new temple and new creation and God's rule. How's that rule going to be expressed? It will be a new covenant under a new king who will bless by separating the righteous from the wicked. That's what it was going to be like. That's what they were promising. And for you and I, well, Christians sitting here, not not back there in Malachi's time, but sitting here, still, you know, waiting for God to act. Isn't this exciting? Isn't this mind-blowing? we waiting can be boring yes it can be distracting true but it can also be full of anticipation for what's to come 
full of excitement for the possibilities that are ahead that we now know and can be sure are ahead. That's the waiting we're in. And we can be sure of these things because we live at a totally different time in history than they did. For them back there, 450 BC, God's king hadn't come yet. Hadn't come yet. For you and I, (laughs) he's already come. He's already come. We don't live in the BC years back there with the Jews longing for some kind of renewed Jerusalem back before Christ came. No, we live in the AD years. AD, Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. That's when we live. For us, God's messenger, John the Baptist, and God's King, our Lord Jesus, have already come. And Jesus has already done those things. That destruction on Jerusalem, it's already happened and he's been enthroned. Jesus has been enthroned already as God's king alongside God at his right hand on high. And we know that the very next thing that's going to happen is his return to judge the living and the dead. That return to bring that final separation and take with him, to live with him in that new creation, all who fear the Lord, to live forever with him. Isn't that exciting? That's the very next thing to happen. And this whole separation thing, this whole blessing by which he will separate the righteous from the wicked, well, we know what that is because it's already begun as well. It has nothing to do with where we live. It's not based upon our nationality or based upon our language. It's not even a separation based on whether we've been vaccinated or not. Nothing to do with any of those things. And certainly not a separation based upon whether or not we've been good today using the kind of measures that people in Australia here like to apply and say that's good and that's not. None of those things are relevant. No, no, no. He's made very clear. Jesus' separation of the righteous from the wicked is based entirely upon how we choose to respond to the words that he has spoken. John chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on them. Believing or refusing. Believing in him or refusing him. That's the separator. That's the same also as it has always been throughout the entire Old Testament. Now, meanwhile, of course, you and I still don't know when he will come. We still don't know. But we do know that the day is closer now than it was before. Certainly closer than it was yesterday and certainly a whole lot closer than back then, 450 years BC, when Malachi wrote. But we know our waiting continues, doesn't it? We know our waiting continues, but we also know there are no more signs to come. The last sign of the Elijah figure and Jesus, the king coming, have happened And Jesus himself said the next thing to occur is it will happen again suddenly. That day will come like a thief in the night. And thieves in the night, they don't announce their coming. It's going to come suddenly. And so the warning we have then is 
watch how you wait. Watch how you wait. And the New Testament is going to unpack this further and further and further for us. 2 Peter chapter 3, we're going to read these words. That the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. No, instead he is patient with us. He's patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but wanting everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord still will come. And that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless and at peace with him. Bearing in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. It's going to be good. There's a bit more time to wait. But I don't know about you. All I want to say is, come. Come, Lord Jesus, come.